This week we delve into an extraordinary new documentary about the Chinese dream. Here's Ascension director Jessica Kingdon. It's extremely rewarding and heartening and simultaneously quite shocking because this is not the type of film that I would have expected to be nominated for these types of awards given its more experimental approach. But I'm feeling so happy that it's speaking to people in the way that it is. I also review Ascension with two fabulous film critics. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith. And this episode is in partnership with MTV Documentary Films, who are releasing the film Ascension in the UK on January the 14th. Ascension is a remarkable portrait of China's industrial supply chain, silently observing everything from etiquette classes to factories making sex dolls. It's a serious awards contender for 2022. It's been shortlisted for an Oscar for Best Documentary. And I'm thrilled to welcome the director, Jessica Kingdon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, massive congratulations on Ascension. It's such a fascinating, riveting documentary. Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and your background as a filmmaker and what brought you to make this film? I had wanted to be a filmmaker for a very long time. Like most people, I didn't have a very traditional in into the film industry. I started out as a videographer For a while, I was working for an architect at an architecture firm, making videos for him. Kind of a series of odd jobs, like tangentially related to film. But I went to grad school at the new school and studied media studies there, which was a program that encouraged me to really experiment and kind of take initiative and just make my own projects with whatever I had. It kind of slowly snowballed out of that. Snowballed is right, because this is huge, it's getting a lot of awards here, congratulations. Thank you so much. When people ask you what the film is about, how do you describe it? It's one of those films that is hard to describe, for sure. To summarise it, I, I tend to say it's a documentary that's exploring the paradox of progress and looking at the contemporary Chinese dream in several vignettes. And it's a visually driven essay film. Although essay film could be a misnomer since essay films tend to have a sort of self-reflexivity to them, which this film doesn't have. But I think there are certain qualities about it that does make it an essay film, which is that it's a film that's exploring an idea rather than maybe a character or a story. It's more ideas driven. I love the way that it provokes so much thought and leaves the viewer to make their own conclusions. Was that always your intention with the film, not to have a narration, to have the fairly static camera and to sort of let everything sink in? Totally. It's a type of documentary filmmaking that I'm drawn to. One that doesn't have narration, doesn't have a traditional narrative. (laughs) 
puts the viewer sometimes in an uncomfortable position where they have to really sit with these sounds and images and be okay without having someone explain what it's supposed to mean or how you're supposed to judge it. Which I think in this particular case, it's even more difficult since China is such a hot button issue. It tends to provoke all sorts of reactions in people today. And so I wanted to take a politically charged issue, but put it in front of an audience without digesting it for them and without moralizing. It's challenging for an audience sometimes because to be dropped into these situations without being told what to think or feel can be uncomfortable. But I wanted to, to make a film that kind of pushes people a little. <laughs> What were the challenges for you as a filmmaker? Getting access, I would imagine, must have been quite a challenge in the first place because you go to a lot of places where people are doing things that you might not expect them to want to be filmed, right? Yeah, I was a bit surprised myself, to be honest, about the kind of access that we were able to get and obviously really thrilled. But basically, we worked with a network of different fixers and field producers in China who helped act as liaisons between us, the filmmaking team, and the different locations that you see in the film. Since the film is not overtly political, we were able to be completely transparent about what we were doing, which is making an observational film about day-to-day -day life related to China's economic rise. It also speaks to a lot of the people who we were filming with in China who did want this kind of cross-cultural promotion and understanding. A lot of times people said yes, maybe because they thought that it would help promote their business or whatever, but also sometimes just because of curiosity and like wanting to make connections with other people that they don't normally get to meet, which I found really heartening. Of course, a lot of places said no, a whole lot of places, but it was also a numbers game. We would have to ask a hundred places to get one yes, for example. But some of the challenges were that I would say people in these locations in China weren't used to film crews coming in and shooting in the style that we were doing. At the carpet factory, the boss, the CEO, called us in for tea on the second day of shooting because he thought that we were corporate spies oh. because of the shooting style where we didn't have a host. He was like, where's the person standing in front of the camera? with the microphone explaining what we're seeing behind them. And we didn't have that. We were just taking these long close-up shots of different types of machinery and processes. And so that looked very suspicious. Because of that, he was convinced that we were trying to steal their tech secrets. So our fixer, Jack, was very smart about it. And he was like, look at these two idiot Americans. Do you think they're capable of stealing your corporate secrets? <laughs> That's great tactics though. I love that. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> And then he made me show the CEO some videos that I made, like installation films that I made in grad school of like very mundane things happening in order to prove that we really were who we said we were. What about your own culture have you brought to this project? Could you explain a little bit more about that? I mean, you grew up in America. I grew up in America. I'm half Chinese. My mom is Chinese. And I had a connection to China because of this but not a direct one, where we didn't know about relatives that we had in China. 
I ended up discovering relatives through making the film, even though like that has nothing to do with the film. That's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. But my mom being Chinese, growing up like with a Chinese grandma living with us, and so being curious about China, both for that reason, but also because it was in the cultural conversation as I was growing up in the '90s and 2000s, people talking about how China is becoming this global superpower. And then at the same time, I'm at home with this Chinese grandma who's cooking for us, and it just felt like this strange dissonance and also relevance in ways that I was trying to process and understand. And I became more and more interested in China because for me, it felt like a country where you could see capitalism functioning, but in a completely different context from our own Western culture. So yeah, I was interested in it from this place of. Like a philosophical question about the paradox of progress, and also from a heritage perspective. I suppose through Westernized, some of the things we've seen in this film seem quite, I suppose, darkly comical. Things like people making sex dolls in a factory or training people to be butlers. Yeah, some of the things that I love about the sex doll factory are it's this hyper exploitative setting, and yet these women are. Being so intimate with one another, the the workers are helping each other at work. You you witness like two young women sort of coaching each other through the process of how to pour some wax into one of the doll's shoulders. You witness moments of camaraderie, of joking. I was looking for these polarities or these moments of paradox for sure. This brings me to a question about gender because we're girls on film and of course we're interested in exploring that. To you, are there any particular elements that come out of what you filmed that you'd like to discuss from a feminist perspective? Totally. I was struck by. The manner school, where you see women learning about how to show the correct amount of teeth when smiling at work, and how high to raise your hand when you're waving, or how to hug, these sort of physical gestures and movements that express both femininity, but in this business setting where it's used in order to harness capital to get ahead economically, and. I thought that that was interesting to contrast with the bodyguard school, where we see men at the very base of when they're being taught about violence and this sort of rough physicality when they're punching each other, and that's also about protecting capital because at the end of the day they're trying to protect these rich CEOs. That's what they're training for. So I don't know. There was something about this like kind of. Physical inscription of like different types of violence onto the body, but seeing how they're done in in different gender roles, I was pretty fascinated by that. It was fascinating to watch, and I thought that contrast was really striking. Now let's come to the cinematography because you did this yourself, correct? It was myself and a co-cinematographer and producer Nathan Truesdale. Can you talk to me about that relationship between you and how you achieved such extraordinary imagery? It really looks phenomenal.、Um, thank you. I think a lot of it is about patience and not getting in the way of the camera sometimes. So once I would set up a shot, 
I would try to create a rule for myself where I didn't touch the camera for at least 30 seconds or a minute, which is surprisingly hard because when there's so much going on, you feel like you're missing out constantly. So it was constantly negotiating this feeling of wanting to commit to one shot and see it through versus breaking that shot and starting over with something else that seems like the new shiny thing happening. So it was kind of an exercise in meditation almost. But yeah, for the shooting style, it really was about this discipline and this meditation and this like trust that the camera is picking something up that maybe I'm not seeing and that I would discover later in the edit room. And sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't, but almost like 90% of the time when reviewing footage, I'm usually angry at myself because I should have held that shot longer. In the edit, what kind of tough decisions did you have to make? We got very lucky in terms of the pandemic, in terms of the timing, because the last shoot was right before COVID hit. So then I had several months and months and months to edit because we were all locked at home too. So that kind of helped. But the challenges, I only really found the arc of ascension later on, weirdly. Like it sounds so obvious, uh, but I was trying all sorts of crazy things. And sometimes the simplest answer in front of you is the one that is the most profound, but sometimes it, you know, takes a lot of circling around in order to get to it. So I came on the structure of class ascension later, but a lot of the hard decisions too were things that I had to leave behind in the editing that um, actually to this day, it still haunts me. Like even last night, I couldn't fall asleep because I was thinking about these scenes that I wish that I left in the movie. But, you know, people still like it, so it's okay. <laughs> they more than like it. I mean, it's been multi-nominated. Congratulations for all the acclaim so far. How are you feeling about being part of award season with this? I mean, it's extremely rewarding and heartening and simultaneously quite shocking because this is not the type of film that I would have expected to be nominated for these types of awards given its more experimental approach. But I'm feeling so happy that it's speaking to people in the way that it is and that these kind of observations that I thought might just be interesting to me and a handful of people are speaking to a wider audience than I ever expected. Well, best of luck um, with the doc. And, you know, I'm excited that people in the UK are going to be able to see it soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm, I'm really excited to be on this. Pleasure. Thank you. That was Jessica Kingdon. Now to review the film, here are critics Katie Smith-Wong and Ashanti Omkar. Well, great to have you both on Girls on Film. Welcome. Thank you. Katie, this is your first time on Girls on Film, so would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Uh, My name is Katie Smith-Wong and I'm a freelance film critic. You can find my work on Flick Feast, for which I am also the reviews editor, but you can also find me on Wadzilla film stories and movie marker. Fantastic. Anna Shanti, welcome back to you. Good to have you back, always. <laughs> Thank what you. have you been up to? I think since we last spoke, I've done quite a bit for Total Film Magazine, which has been really interesting, popping on the podcast and doing interviews, etc. So it's been a fun and very busy year. <laughs> busy is good when you're a freelancer. Right? Indeed. <laughs> so we're here to talk about Ascension. Yes. Part of its aim is to talk about the Chinese dream and so I was interested to ask you both first what that phrase means to you and maybe we can follow up by asking how the film explores it. Katie let me start with you. Uh, Well the Chinese dream is about wealth and success 
And the documentary is chasing that through a tireless work ethic, whether it's very skilled manual labour or going through the more modern route of influencers and social media. I think it's just making sure that you're kind of set for the future in terms of financial and professional success. Yeah, that comes across in the film, doesn't it? There's some really interesting scenes where they train people up on being influencers and social media and how it's all about how many fans you've got. And that seems to kind of define them according to this rather dubious tutorial <laughs> in one scene. Yeah, it's weird to see because, you know, the millennials are doing it, but you also have the older Chinese people trying to get in on it by doing YouTube videos or recording training sessions and things like that. So it's interesting to see how different generations try and take advantage of such a modern way of marketing. Ashanti, let me talk to you about that, but also about what Chinese Dream meant to you first and perhaps what it does now having watched this. Well, to be honest, this is the dream of everybody. Everybody who is in a certain class wants to be better. And, you know, in, in Japan, I remember going to management school and studying about Kaizen, which is the Japanese idea of continuous improvement. And it applies, obviously, to manufacturing quite a lot. But actually, in real life, all of us are trying to do the same thing. Social media fuels this in a huge way because you're constantly looking at other people and seeing, what's Beyonce doing? Oh, I want to get on that same yacht and travel to that same place. You know, little children. I speak to a lot of kids all the time. I have nieces, nephews, and a lot of them have this aspiration. From childhood, they want to be a YouTuber, a podcaster. They want to kind of build up their clout. But this particular film examines those at the other side, as well as those who are already at a level where they have the Huawei mobile phone and the ring light, and they can actually broadcast to the world. Yeah, it's an interesting structure, isn't it? Sort of in three parts. Yeah, the director, Jessica Kingdon, I read that she was planning to do a trilogy of these films, but ultimately combined it into one. So it's got no narration. So you're actually seeing everyday footage of workers. And you've got the manual labourers and the influencers and the professionals. So you're seeing the not only the generational differences, but the gaps in skill sets it gives you an insight as to the polarising spectrums of the employment uh, world in China. Ashanti, did you see anything that shocked you or surprised you in this that you wouldn't have expected to see? Well, I'd always been very aware about how sex toys were made, but this gives you a very, <laughs> very, very stark description, I should say, because the amount of detail and the fact that people are saying, I want this type of customization, I want this color painted, and that this is being painted by hand. So these are life-sized sex dolls, right? Yeah, yeah so they're not right. just dildos these are like <laughs> full-on like they, they look real don't they almost they honestly i mean even the skin what 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 i've never seen one up close and personal so watching it in this documentary is that you even see that there's almost goosebumps on the skin of these dolls and the amount of detail that goes into it plus the fact that it's an all-woman workforce sitting there making these dolls Wow. It was kind of mind-blowing to see it so starkly done. That was a really striking image, I thought, coming from a female director and seeing these young, presumably underpaid women kind of lifting up the legs and looking into the crotches of these sex dolls and painting their nipples. Katie, I mean, I love the way, as you said, that there is no narration. It's not telling you what to think. But what kind of thoughts were you having particularly perhaps about gender inequality when you were watching that it's kind of comical but also disturbing scene uh, well 
it's kind of hard to really put into words when you see something like that. <laughs> but it does blur the line of like what the consumer might want as to what can be achieved. Because there's a lot of checking on social media, comparing to what their customers might want or who they might want. And I think if I saw guys do that, I would have felt a bit uncomfortable. But with, I guess with a female workforce, there's a lot more care and attention in terms of delivering the right kind of appearance for the end user. The end user, yes. (laughs) It made me think, you know, these sex dolls are crafted after what is supposed to be the ideal or the most popular appearance. And it seemed very much based on a sort of pornographic Western model, which seemed to me in contrast to the more sort of down to earth girls who were around it and working on it. And um, I just wondered what they might be thinking at that point. I don't know. They looked very nonchalant. They looked like they were just doing their job. And we saw at the start of the documentary that when when they're being hired into these kinds of roles, they're almost told to leave their brain at home, come in, do their job. And your ultimate reward is doing the job. I don't know about you, but when I first watched it, it was almost quite like a military kind of setup. Because yes. everyone's saying yes. dorms here, you get paid this, you go into the buses, you go to work and all that stuff. Maybe during that scene, it's like, all right, just don't think about this, don't think about that just just get paid just remember you're doing it for the money however low it may be yeah I mean it was reminiscent to me of a film like um, Sorry We Missed You Ken Loach you know showcasing how these people needed they of course they needed that money so they would have to carry bottles so they can pee in their vans they would have hardly any life. They would barely see their families. And in this case, it was, again, starkly shown. But these were real people. Yeah, I thought it was profoundly affecting, as well as being absolutely fascinating. I mean, there's the other scene where they teach them how to do etiquette and they refer to Downton Abbey, <laughs> which is a very funny idea. But I was fascinated by that statement that the tutor said that, you know, a lot of people in China got rich overnight and they expect butlers and nannies and they want them trained in this sort of Western style. I thought it was hilarious. I guess because as I am Chinese, it's not something that I really tend to see, butlers or maids or anything like that. And it's just a matter of perception, perhaps, because they only mention Downton Abbey. They don't mention about like contemporary entertainment. No one expects butlers nowadays. But in parts of Africa, in India, having a, a servant, a nanny is a very normal thing. I mean, gosh, we, we don't see it in England, but just this week alone, I've seen two nannies in different. One was in Mayfair taking pictures of the kids she was looking after. The other one was on the train. So having these butlers, these nannies, this is not abnormal. I think maybe we've not seen it in a Chinese context and we have now and we're like, whoa. But this is something that does happen globally. The one scene that actually got to me was their business etiquette conference and they talked about art of the hug. And that just like you need to be prepared five steps for the person that you're trying to hug with your arms outstretched. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. You just hug them. You don't have to prepare like you're flying in like an airplane right towards the person that you're trying to hug. I mean, for me, the biggest shock, the minute this film started, I just thought, how the heck did they get access? It's an incredible feat. Yes. It covers a lot of ground. This kind of access, you know, to 51 sites across China, and this kind of meticulous attention to detail, and then to be 
able to sit there and actually get close-ups of what was going on. This completely blew my mind. I think the cinematography is fabulous. Absolutely. Because I love the fact that this is a female DOP that's gone out there, possibly taking some risks because, gosh, you know, some of those looked very military-like. And the fact that these people were getting into these these vans and, and driving off and they were capturing all this footage, it can't have been easy to do. So kudos. And of course, Nathan, who's worked with Jessica on this, Again, I have to give you both a kudos. Yeah, because there are some interesting scenes where there are military training scenes and they provide a sort of very masculine contrast to what we'd seen before. Yeah, this was a a particular scene, bodyguard training, and it is very forceful because of the amount of exercise that they did. But I did notice that there was one female applicant in that training and she looks very somber, very detached. It also shows the mental and psychological effects of such training because a lot of people might think that women aren't suited to such a physical role and to just be exposed to that kind of... um, forceful exercises and training because they are essentially hitting each other so hard that they bruise that's the kind of eye-opening things that audiences might appreciate because it's not just for the fact that she's just a woman it is a hard job i agree there are so many things this makes you think and i love that it gives the viewer the space to do that individually you're just watching these extraordinary things happening and eavesdropping really ashanti is there anything as we wrap up that you wanted to highlight that really struck you and got you thinking so there was a documentary film called manufactured landscapes that came out in 2006 that i in some ways maybe jessica was perhaps inspired by that to give us almost an updated version of what's going on now in a similar area in a similar part of the world and I have to say that I'm hoping that more filmmakers get this kind of access to show us what's on the other side because it's a mirror to society and it's something that we just do not get to see and it'd be it'll be really great to see different countries including the UK actually because when you look at lower salaries in the UK a factory worker gets what like nine pounds 88 an hour you know it's not like the UK if you look at class and if you look at working hierarchies you'll see that all over the world this does exist and it'd be really interesting and see whether films like this can make change in those countries because again once people start watching them will they say well we want this to change will they start campaigning for it that's what I want to see going forward yes absolutely it's awareness raising isn't it and you know making it as I think you said to me when when you originally watched this makes you think about that label made in china and what yes. what actually goes into that when you hear made in china you just think you know what kind of conditions they are but to actually see it in front of you you think oh gosh there's just this high turnover high just product after product and it is interesting that they are working to their bone to cater for the whims of the the materialism of the Western world. And this is a contender in awards season. Ashanti, do you think that sort of awards buzz will help get that message across? Absolutely, 100%. I feel like this sort of film needs to be seen to a wider audience like you said the awards buzz will put a spotlight on it because there are lots of lots of films lots of documentaries we're all bombarded with all of them but there is a reason why something like this must be seen in the wider world yeah i agree with the shanti i think it feels a very unconventional way to do a documentary but very very effective thank you both so much for joining girls on film i hope we'll get you both on again soon Um, Meantime, may I wish you both a very happy Christmas and a wonderful New Year. Thank Thank you you so much. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. (laughs) And Merry Christmas to all the listeners. Have a Happy New Year. That was Ashanti Omkar and Katie Smith-Wong.
Ascension is out in the UK on January the 14th and do keep an eye out for it in the run-up to the BAFTAs and the Oscars. Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio producer Benjamin Cook, intern Shania Pithia and our partners for this episode, MTV Documentary Films. I'm Anna Smith and I was joined by Jessica Kingdon, Katie Smith-Wong and Ashanti Omkar. Thank you, lovely listeners. Stay safe, have a great break and we will see you in the new year. Thank you.